So with that, I want us to jump into our time in the Word today. I have to tell you that I had a plan um, for about five months for this Sunday that fell in between us finishing the book of Acts, which was one of the, the most amazing times just in study in my life, to go through the book of Acts over a period of about nine months, and then beginning this next series that leads to Easter, we fell with, with one Sunday in the middle. And the plan for about four or five months, just so you know, uh, was to talk about the biblical concept of covenant and what that means for us as Christians as we covenant together as a body, uh, ultimately to relate to God in a way that brings his, his kingdom to bear here and now and his glory to all the nations. And, and that was my plan. And about Monday evening, uh, the Holy Spirit kind of took me to task on a few things. Um, and I wanted to kind of walk through that with you because what, what you're going to find in this sermon is ultimately uh, what I'd been wrestling with for a while now after just a few conversations with, with some of our elders on some things that, um, as I talked to one of them, as we emailed back and forth, he said, I, I, that was the Holy Spirit because that's not what I was trying to tell you. Um, and so we'll kind of walk through, as we start this, uh, just to kind of recap the book of Acts briefly. Not the book and the study we went through, but what God has done in that last nine months that really excite me about the direction of our church. I think we see this sense of unity and excitement around the gospel has been developing as we studied the book of Acts, which makes sense because every time someone speaks in the book of Acts, they share the simple message of the cross, of Christ's death for our sins, and that that through that and through his resurrection, forgiveness and eternal life is offered to men and women who, who on their own merit have no grounds to receive forgiveness. And so we saw that kind of develop. Um, if you want to look at just some things in terms of our church, we saw some new life groups spring up because life groups have grown to the point that they were so large and they were catching new couples that it was time for them to, to birth another group. And we saw that happen several times. And some of those groups even now are already to the size that, that a new group could form. And so we're seeing the life group thing take off uh, in, in exciting ways beyond where we had been before. Uh, to where the, the groups are willing to kind of step away and go, let's go start a new group and let's have a creative spirit about this so that we can bring in more people. And so we saw that happen several times through that series. We, we saw some people accept Christ, not only children and youth, but adults. And, and, and that was exciting. And so God has really been doing something in our midst, and I think we can all kind of sense that if we're, if we're here regularly and this is our church home. Uh, but kind of stepping into this next thing, um, I just kind of wanted to talk a bit about prayer and, and maybe to share with you kind of the reasons we don't talk about prayer all the time. Um, one is it's very easy for us to focus on what we can do, on action steps, on, on a plan, and and. And prayer doesn't seem like a plan for those of us that are planners. That seems like something you do before you plan, uh, and maybe during your planning, and maybe as you pursue your plan, but it, it doesn't seem like a plan. We also, honestly, just to be completely transparent about you, I don't tend to teach on prayer a lot because um, I feel woefully inadequate to do that. But I think I'm probably um, in good company there. So to ask for a little participation... Everyone just stand up. Just everybody up. This will be interesting. Now, if you feel like your prayer life is exactly where it ought to be, I mean, it is vibrant, you are passionate, and and you don't grow weary in prayer, would you just stay standing? So everybody who feels like their prayer life is, is spot on where it ought to be. 
All right, I'm, we're taking notes from you. All right. You get where I'm coming from here, right? Um, we all want our prayer lives to be just rich. And like, we want to wake up every morning with this intense desire to pray that is more significant than our desire for coffee. Although I would say coffee is God's common grace that, that provides fuel to my prayer life. Um, but we all want that, but very few of us experience that frequently. Like maybe occasionally, uh, but not every day. When our children get sick, our first instant inclination is to uh, give them Tylenol or call, call the doctor. And those aren't bad things, but it's not prayer. In fact, I don't truly pray when my children get sick unless it's really bad. I mean, I just figure Carl can handle it until a point, certain point, and then I quit trusting Carl, and I start praying. Uh, but our first inclination when struggle comes isn't always prayer, is it? And so we see this kind of thing play out, and so I wanted to talk about prayer because I think for all of us, not only individually, but as a body, we would probably honestly say that our prayer life isn't where we would want it to be, it's not as fulfilling as we would want it to be. We're not as passionate in prayer as we would like to be. And so my goal is kind of a couple things here. One is to just encourage you. If you find that your prayer life is difficult at times, that, that your goals or aspirations for what your prayer life should be are, are hard to live up to or hard to pursue over a long period of time, I think, I think this time in the Word today will be encouraging. It's also to help us build a biblical and theological understanding of prayer so that we begin to grasp how it works a little more and then to tear down barriers and, and things that keep us from praying. And then finally, I have to be honest, um, I fear that as a body we have a grave danger of becoming a nice church. Like things are going pretty well for us, we've seen some growth, we've um, seen some neat things happen and I think I have a fear that, that we could become a nice, clean, safe church and not become this ferocious movement of God into our community and the world. And, and, and as I sat back reflecting, like what is the difference between a nice, safe, clean church that has some growth and sees some people get saved and gives some money to missions? You know, a, a good church and a church that is passionate about the advancement of the gospel and seeing the Holy Spirit move. Like, what's the difference? And ultimately I said, well, the difference in, in church A, that's a, a good place to go, and church B, it, it's not strategy. Uh, some churches that are, that are amazing, uh, the strategy's not that great. Um, some churches that just kind of go ho-hum, I mean, they're really strategic. Uh, it's not the giftedness of their leadership. That's one of the things I learned. I began to look at, at, at some books on prayer, and I ran across one, this guy, Jim Cimbala, whose church, uh, we would disagree on some finer points, but there, there's no arguing that the Holy Spirit was poured out in this church. And you listen to Jim preach, and you go, this guy is, is boring. My ADD kicks in in about 45 seconds. I mean, he says hello, and I'm going, eh, I'm not getting you, Jim. Uh, it, I don't think it's his giftedness. I mean, he would tell you it's not. So it wasn't that. So it's not strategic, it's not giftedness, it's, it's not necessarily location, it's not facilities. You go through and you find that those things aren't good predictors of 
whether or not a church will have a significant impact for the gospel. What I begin to wrestle with is that the difference between church A, that's a nice, safe place, and church B, that is a ferocious movement of God, is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we can't manufacture that. We can only plead for it. And so as a pastor, as one of your elders, I'm, I'm wrestling through, how do we not become content with being an okay church and, and have this holy discontent that wants more and more of God. And ultimately, it comes down to prayer. And so that's kind of, we got our work cut out for us. And I didn't get to preach a few weeks, so we just rolled it all into one. First thing I want to begin with is in Romans chapter 15, verse 30. And if, I think you will find this very encouraging. The Apostle Paul, who, who's like... A super Christian. I mean, I always picture Paul with the cape on, rushing out of a, of a phone booth to go do something amazing. I mean, he says things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I go, this guy's awesome. And then look at what he says in, in chapter 15 of Romans, verse 30. He says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Other translations will say, Toil with me in prayer. Labor with me in prayer. So if you ever feel like your prayer life is a struggle or work or toil, take courage. The Apostle Paul says, labor with me, work with me. Let's sweat at this. Let's get to work at praying. So prayer is, ultimately, it's a constant task. It's a constant work. See, even the Apostle Paul says this doesn't come natural to us. This this lifestyle of prayer is something that we must work at. And it helps if other people work alongside with us. And as a side note, life groups are significant for that. If you don't have a group of people that you meet frequently with, that you share your burdens, that you pray for, that that pray for you, you're missing something really significant in the spiritual life because you don't have people there taking up the struggle to pray with you. This theme is repeated in Colossians chapter 4. If you turn to Colossians 4.12, you'll see it play out again. He begins to talk to them about a guy named Epaphras. And this is what he says. Epaphras, who was one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. Now listen to what Epaphras does for the people there in Colossae. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. That you may stand firm and that the will of God and mature and fully assured. So listen to what he encourages and he commends Epaphras for doing. For wrestling in prayer. Other translations would say, for struggling for you in prayer. So prayer sometimes feels a bit like a struggle, a bit like a wrestling match. And that would put us, honestly, in a good position according to where the text says. That would put us in company with guys like the Apostle Paul and this gentleman Epaphras, who Paul commends for wrestling in prayer, for toiling and laboring in prayer. Prayer. And countless times over and over the scriptures drive home this point that we are to make a constant, concerted effort to pray. And maybe just run through a few with you. Uh, in Ephesians 6, 18, we're commanded to pray with all endurance. 
and to keep praying, just to keep praying. Just keep praying all the time. It says praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying. I think the English Standard Version says to pray with all endurance. So we endure in prayer. And the reason we endure in prayer is because, one, it's not easy. You never endure anything that is easy. Like, you don't endure eating a blizzard at Dairy Queen. You don't endure that. Although, for the large, that takes building some stamina. But no one said, you know, we went to the ice cream shop and I endured it. Endurance implies that at times this is difficult, but that you continue. Ephesians 6 also says, be alert in prayer. Acts 4 tells us to be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4 says, be watchful in prayer. 1 Thessalonians says, pray without ceasing. Now, now, wrap your mind around this, that, that one, our prayer lives don't look like that. And two, it is a struggle constantly to pursue that kind of dependence and faith in God. That's what the writers of the New Testament are showing us over and over again. First Timothy would say, pray night and day. To toil, to be diligent, to endure. And the Scriptures use these words because very clearly the Holy Spirit understands that it is our nature to not pray as we ought or as we need. But we endure in prayer not because we're checking off a list, not because someone somewhere told us you need to begin your day in prayer. And so we begin our day in prayer and then we check that off. Jesus tells a story about the kingdom of God where he says the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And he went in his joy and sold everything he had and bought the field. It's not legalism. It's not rules and laws if we approach prayer digging for treasure, wanting more of God in our joy recognizing where we are and how great he is and our need for him that he is our infinite fountain of joy and so we go to him in prayer and so we seek him in that way I'd like to take us maybe for the bulk of our teaching today now that we've kind of walked into the predicament we are in in prayer to Luke chapter 11 and those of you guys who are astute and familiar with the the gospel of Luke know that that right here in 11, he's just done the Lord's Prayer. Which is an amazing teaching on prayer that we're not going to go into today because what I think is very significant for us is the teaching on prayer that continues immediately after the Lord's Prayer. Jesus begins to kind of tell a story that's instructional about how prayer works. In Luke chapter 11, verse 5, it says, Then he said to them, he's teaching on prayer, he says to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because of he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needed. So let's stop and look at this story. So it says you're, you're at home, and in the middle of the night, a traveler who's a friend of yours shows up at your doorstep. Midnight, you show up at my house, we're still awake. There, not so much, 
right? They didn't have electric lights. Uh, so when the sun went down, you pretty much got ready for bed. And when the sun comes up, you pretty much get up. Your life, day and night, sleep and rest is connected to sun up, sundown, not some arbitrary clock. So you're asleep. You've probably been asleep for a while. And more than that, he says, look, my kids are in bed with me, which I have to tell you, if my kids are in bed asleep, bro, I ain't getting up for nothing. Because if one of them wakes up, the whole night changes for me. So he says, look, Mike, we're all in bed. The door's locked. We're not coming out there. And so the guy just keeps knocking. He's like, seriously, I have a friend here and I have to feed them. Like, it is a cultural obligation if you have a friend traveling that you feed them. Even if it means you go borrow something from a neighbor because you don't have anything prepared. So this person's desiring to be a good guest more than they are to be a good neighbor. And at midnight they're just banging on the door saying, can I have some bread? And the guy answer is no. He says, but, but here's the deal. Eventually, not because he likes his neighbor, not because they're friends... But because of his boldness, he'll get up and, and relent and give him what he has requested. That's the story. He says, eventually, because the man is so bold, he'll give him what he's asked for. Not because of their relationship, but simply because of his boldness. The Greek word translated boldness there also means shameless persistence. This consistent pursuit of something that you know is a ridiculous request. He says because of that, he'll relent. And the thing I love about this story is Jesus kind of puts them in this perspective where he says, look, imagine your worst fears about God are true. Imagine he's not good. Imagine he doesn't love you. Imagine he's not merciful. Imagine he finds you quite annoying. Imagine that God is like Mr. Wilson and that he views you like Dennis the Menace. Imagine that. He says, even if that were true, if you are persistent and bold in prayer, he will relent just to shut you up. But then Jesus turns the story. So in verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door is open. Which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So he turns and he says, imagine that God isn't good and loving. And even then, if you're persistent in prayer, he would relent. He says, but God is good. He is generous. He desires to pour out blessings upon his children. And then he says, you fathers out there, even though wrecked by sin as you are, when your children ask you for something good, you don't give them something wicked. You give them what is good for them. That's your instinct as a father. And I know some people in our room today go, you look, my, my dad was a joke. I understand that that happens. But what God is saying here is whatever fatherhood ought to be, whatever it should be, God is that imperfection. Without any error, without any malice, without any selfishness, God is that to perfection. And God is this perfectly loving Father who adores His children. And He says, look, do you think that you're going to ask for something good and God is going to give you something evil? 
And then he turns it, and this is why I think it's so significant for understanding how prayer works. He doesn't say God's going to give you the stuff that you've requested. He said, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And as I wrestle personally through struggles in life, as we look at our church and we go, what's the difference between an, an okay, kind of nice place to go to church and a church that, that is passionately advancing the gospel? In the end, it's the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Right? So, so if your marriage is in shambles, what you need is the Holy Spirit's presence, not only in your heart, but your spouse's turning your hearts back to one another and to God. If you have a child that is wayward, ultimately what they need is the Holy Spirit to draw them back and to reconcile you. If you struggle with addiction or with the same kind of repetition of sin, ultimately what you need is, is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So the scriptures hit exactly on what our need is. He says, how much more will God give you the Holy Spirit when you ask, when you plead for more of God, for his power and presence and his majesty in your life, he says, how much more will God give you that? Later in John 15, Jesus would tell us that if we abide in him, that anything we ask in his name, God will give us. Now, this isn't rubbing the lamp and the genie uh, this is just the Bible, guys. We're not talking name it, claim it, some, some strange theology that says, I'd like a Hummer, and I'm going to say, God, I, I believe in faith that you're going to give me a Hummer, and then I'm going to walk outside and there's going to be a red one. That's, that doesn't work. We all, when you say it like that, you all recognize how, how nonsensical that is. The caveat you get is in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where the scriptures tell us that you... Have not because you ask not. Now the implication of that is that if you did ask, you would have. And then he tells us that, and you don't have, because when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend it on your own pleasures. And so when we pursue God and when we ask passionately with the right intention, knowing that we have a loving Father who gives us good things, we can rest assured that He will answer. Sometimes we don't ask for the right things. And that's what James 4 points out. And you guys see this with kids, right? They, they ask for ridiculous stuff that you know is not going to be good for them. The old Christmas story is the kid wants a Red Ryder BB gun. And the mom says, you'll shoot your eye out with it. And then finally he gets it. And what happens, right? I'm not opposed to BB guns. It's just a great example. Right? We want things often that in the end aren't good for us. And so God says no to that. But when we ask for those things that, that God says that is what you need, the Bible says he who asks receives. And I'm not going to try to convince you that that doesn't mean what it says. So some of us have not because we ask not. Some of us, let's be honest, are in marriages that, that we're kind of like hanging on for the kids. And we settled into that. We don't even plead with God to change it. We're, we're comfortable in this life that sin is wrecked. Some of you guys have kids that uh, are wayward, that, that are distant, that, that you, the, the, the biggest prayer you, you might pray for them is that they just don't die. Like, that they, could we get them through high school? 
and we're settled into this kind of this comfort with things being wrecked by sin. Some of us have relationships within our family that, that are so tense and, and so filled with strife that we've, we've given up on any hope of reconciliation. We don't even pray about it. Some of us have this like pattern of sin, this addiction that we just keep falling into, and our prayer is as simple as, like, help me manage the triggers, and we don't even ask God to be delivered. Like, why do we pray so small? And you all know what I'm talking about. We just pray these like hold down the fort prayers and we never ask God to send the Holy Spirit in power to change us and to change the situation. We just pray little. And sometimes, guys, sometimes, and this is the most frustrating for me, is that we couch this absence of faith in theology. Where we don't actually believe that God can or will do anything, and so we couch this in some theology that says, I just want God to give me the peace to get through this, and that's, a, that's an acceptable prayer. But if that's the end of the line, that's really small faith. And so we pray, and I'm asking you to, to elevate your prayers beyond the simple get me through this to the looking for the glory of God in the midst of it and pleading for more of God, for more of His presence in your life, more of the Spirit's power for His Glory in your life. The scriptures would tell us that our good is ultimately found in God. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 1. And then we're going to skip over to verse 6. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith for us. It says, now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So that is faith. It is this certainty, this sureness of what we hope for and cannot see in God. And then verse 6 tells us this. It says, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you get that? In order for you to please God, you must believe in Him and seek Him, believing that He blesses those who pursue Him. That if you don't pursue God asking for His presence and blessing, you do not please Him. That if we don't approach God seeing Him as this infinite fountain of blessing, we have shortchanged Him and robbed Him of His glory. Not a slot machine in the heavens that, that gives us what we want when we fulfill the, the equation. But this, this great God that we relate to that is ultimately good and loving and generous, who knows what is best for us. And the scriptures would tell us that in the end, our greatest good is God. That we would have Him. More and more the presence of the Holy Spirit and a heart that is delighting in the Son, that, that rejoices in what the Father did for us in sending Him. So we pursue God believing that He is our greatest good. And that means that, that if God is this infinite wellspring of, of joy, and He is, Shouldn't we all have this kind of sense of discontent with, with what we experience? I'm not talking about being greedy or grabby. I'm talking about 
recognizing that what I experience day in, day out, the effects of sin in my own heart and in my family and in my workplace, that shouldn't that bother me? In the scriptures in Romans 8, we find that creation is groaning, waiting the redemptions of the sons of God. And then we read like Psalm 42, where, where David says, As a deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts after you. Now, now, they lived in the desert, right? And so there's not water just abounding. This isn't the Gulf Coast. And so he says, I thirst. He said, I'm longing. I'm, I'm over here withering away to nothing without God's presence. Do you see the agony? Do you see the groaning? And if you read, if you read the writings and reflections to some of the great men and women of our faith, you see the same thing playing out, this holy discontent with how sin has wrecked the world and this sense of groaning that says we're just wasting away if the Holy Spirit doesn't do something. And I look around and in my own heart and around everywhere I go and I don't see any groaning. Like I just don't see it. I just don't do it that much. And I've been about, about four days of groaning. It, where is it? Like, where is our sense that, that, that this sin-fraught world is not the way it should be and that we need the Holy Spirit to transform us and the world and that we could be a part of that as we take up the gospel and advance it under the power of the Holy Spirit? Where is that weeping for sin? Where is that weeping over divorce and over a million babies who are murdered in America every year under the guise of abortion? Where is that weeping? Where is the weeping and groaning for racism and starvation and the way that sin has wrecked our own families? Where is it? I don't see a lot. I don't do a lot. So creation groans, and, and men of the faith have grown, and we often don't. And so I, what I wanted to maybe walk through is why. Like why don't we pray that way? So I started asking myself some questions. I began at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 tells me that I have to understand that God is my source of all good things, and I'm a prideful person and begin to think that I am. That I'm self-reliant, that I'm self-righteous, and that, that everything I have is because I've worked hard. I mean, the truth is, the scripture would say that every good and perfect gift comes from God, that he has poured down his blessing over and over upon us. The righteous and the unrighteous receive rain and crops, and Acts would say that it fills their hearts with joy. So that every good thing we have is not the work of our own hands. It's God's gracious, loving spirit to that. So not only would the scripture tell me that we don't seek God because we think we're self-reliant, experience does, right? How many of you guys just... Struggle in prayer until that moment that your delusions of self-control and owning your own destiny are absolutely shattered. And then all of a sudden, those of us with weak prayer lives, we're prayer warriors. I mean, we pray like nothing as we go through this. So you have someone you love that gets sick and you're walking through that journey. All of a sudden, it's just like, man, you can pray. You have a passion, a desire to pray. Why? Because your illusion of control is gone. So sometimes we don't pray because we're arrogant and we think we're under control. We think we've got it. And to be honest, sometimes, guys, sometimes we pray because we just don't believe. Like, we believe our situation may be too big for God. We believe our sin may be too great. Or, or we just believe that he's not interested. We don't want to bother him. 
We don't want to upset God. We don't want to waste God's time. To kind of answer that as we're kind of moving towards a close, I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 62. In Isaiah 62, we find God laying out something for his people, a demand for them, or a command of what they ought to do. We're going to begin in verse 6. So this is what This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give Him, give the Lord no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Now, check this out. God says, I delight in my children bothering so much that I've actually appointed people to bother me. Right? Put these watchmen on the wall and tell them not to sleep. Tell them to pray all day. Tell them to give me no rest until Jerusalem is the place that I have called it to be. Don't let me rest until I answer your prayer. Do you get that? God has appointed people and said, bother me and don't stop bothering until I answer you. Until Jerusalem is established. And so for us to look at that, God would say, bother me. Bother me until the marriage is reconciled. Until the child has returned to the Lord. Bother me until the addiction is defeated. Bother me until you experience victory over that sin. Bother me until this church is an amazing movement of the Holy Spirit and Tom all around the world. God says, bother me. Please. Keep praying. Don't stop until I answer. Not only has God ordained to respond to our prayer, and so we can shake out the sovereignty of God and Him responding to prayer, but in the end, God has ordained to move in history and in our lives in response to prayer. So He has not only ordained it, but He takes joy in it. He loves it when His children plead with Him. So his call to us is to bother him. To keep praying. I guess I gotta tell you, this is this is a boldness that God is asking of us in prayer that is not normal. It's not something we we don't usually pray this way. To be honest, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't pray this way. Like, who am I? To approach God with this kind of shameless confidence. Who am I to do that? It's ultimately not about me. The reason we approach God with this kind of boldness has nothing to do with who I am. And everything to do with who Jesus is and what he did for us. That's what we celebrate today.